the only silver lining to this whole thing, Adam, is that this is a world pandemic where 2008 was US dependent, which then started an explosion around the world, right? Where, where it was sort of, it was fundamentally started here in the United States. So we're all today, we're all in the same boat. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out of the box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, AAA Adams. And today we are going back down under. Is it called down under? It is called down under. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so I've got my mate here on the show, Reed Goosens, um, who's been crushing it in multifamily. Um, when we talk about down under, he did move from Australia to the US about eight years ago. Six years uh, ago, he started syndicating multifamily deals. And then about four years ago, he started a podcast called um, Investing in the U.S. And um, so we're going to really dive into a little bit of his story. Um, But one thing that was interesting when we were doing the pre-interview today is that he had some insight that I think not everybody has. and, And he's got his opinions on what's going on with coronavirus and the market today. So I thought that would, I thought that'd be really helpful for you, the listener. So let's talk about what's going on with coronavirus, what's what it's doing to his business, how he's pivoting, and um, we'll get into a little bit of the story too. And we'll definitely have him back on the show to be able to help us uh, learn a little bit more about him because he's got a lot that he can help with marketing, branding. Um, he's done quite a lot of deals over the last six years. And um, yeah, I'm excited to have you. So Reed, will you tell us, start out by just telling me and the audience a little bit about like your very first deal you ever did, like six years ago, uh, your first syndication deal. What, what did it feel like? What did it look like? What was going through your mind and your heart? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thanks, mate, for having me on the show. Uh, it's good to good to be on on the show. Now we've been collaborating for a little bit of time now, so it's exciting to be here. Uh, yeah, the first deal, uh, quote unquote, syndication deal, was a co syndication with my mentor, and we don't have to get into names if you don't want to. But it was really uh, a deal that I happened to. So, so the story goes is that. I was doing, I moved to the United States in 2012. I knew I'd been self-educating for a period of time prior to that. Um, in 2012, moved here to New York City, realized the just plethora, the, the amount of freaking information that is available, readily available in, in the United States compared to what it was back home in Australia. And, you know, stuff like the REAs, the Real Estate Investment Associations. Within two, literally two weeks of being fresh off the boat, I was at my first REA. Um, changing that to change my whole mindset around how to the US investing lingo works, you know, talking to a bunch of fast talking yanks about real estate, you know, is sort of like way over my head, like what's a credit score, what's an LLC. And so I, I spent the first couple of months getting really getting my mind around that. But 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 knowing that I'd sort of was had been coming to the point of okay, I know I need to start doing deals. So did the first deal, which was a, a little triplex I bought for 38000 bucks in upstate New York pivoted to the next deal. And then it really got to a point where along this period of time, I've been, you know, I knew in the back of my mind, I needed to get a coach, uh, a mentor, um, because I knew I was starting to get to the end of my tether. I was working a full-time job. Uh, I'd only got a, had a couple of little properties. Uh, and it was just, it was through one conversation that I had with a good friend of mine who, um, he came down from, from Canada and he told me about what he just closed on a, a 70 unit deal. And I said, geez, 70, like seven zero. And he's like, yeah, seven zero. 
I was like, how the hell did you do that? And he talked about mentors. He talked about other people's money. He talked about um, you know, selling carryback financing, all this great stuff we've always learned and, and known about. But it was, it was that sort of that epiphany of like, well, if he can do it, why can't I do it? And, and the limiting factor was that I need, I knew I, at that point, like I'd, okay, I'd done a couple of little deals. I could prove to myself that I can do it. I've just moved to the United States. I need a coach. I don't want to go out and spend a ton of money. You know, I've been, I was going to seminars all the time and getting pitched all these you know, really expensive um, uh, mastermind and coaching programs, but I was very frugal with my money. So I, I found someone who'd only done one deal at the time. He was real, relatively cheap, uh, really cheap actually compared to what he is today. And, but what it was, Adam, was that it was the permission for me to go and invest in myself, right? And go and double down. So it's a long-winded way about how I got to the first deal. But through that, I was able to start the podcast. Through that, I was able to meet other people, um, take myself seriously. And then I moved to LA, um, fast forward a year, moved to LA, uh, started a, net, a, net, a meetup group. And we spoke at meetups on my podcast the other day. And I started a meetup group. It was literally a, a Thursday night happy hour. Um, and through that, I met a gentleman um, who happened to also be in a similar scenario to myself, working full-time was in 2014, he was an underwriter for a big um, acquisition company and he'd found this really great deal in Houston. Um, and I learned a lot of underwriting tech t- techniques and tricks from him and he's a great guy today and he's gone off to done incredible amounts of stuff. And But he was like, man, I, I don't know how to raise money and, and you know, he was sort of, you could see that I was a hustler and he was a hustler and I was like, hey, I've got this mentor that like, he, he apparently can raise money, you know, like let's introduce you to. And so I, I, went, I went and introduced them and Initially, my mentor was like, no, nah, no, nah, I can't, I don't, I don't want to do it. And I knew the deal was good. And, and this particular gentleman was like, you know, can you ask him again? And I was like, okay, let's ask him again. Dude, you, you've got to do this deal. And through the coaxing, they finally joined partnerships. And I only raised a very small amount of money on, on that deal. And I was only a co-sponsor. But sort of I happened to make the introduction. They've gone off to create an incredible company and platform by themselves. But it was that first deal that really both of us, all three of us, or maybe not necessarily mental, but, but just definitely this other gentleman who had the deal, like just the different hats that you need to wear when you're doing the first deal. And I think it ended up taking four or five people in the, in the KP or in the GP to get this 250 unit deal done. Uh, and we all had different skill sets. I, my, my hap- mine only happened to be just the introductory skill set. Like, cause at that time I wasn't, the podcast wasn't established. I didn't have the confidence to do deals, but it was like, uh, it's sort of like you'd figure it out, right? We're smart. We're, collectively, we're all smart enough to figure this thing out. And it, it, the deal happened to speak for itself. But in saying that, it was still really hard to pitch people to invest in it when you didn't have a massive track record. So we all struggled with that collective, you know, um, thinking that you could raise it quicker than what you actually could. And that really, you know, uh, segues into making, you know, doubling down on the podcast, doubling down on the education, you know, making sure that me as a syndicator, it's my role as a syndicator to teach my investors about what I do. If they uh, still have questions when I present them a deal, then you haven't done your job well enough preamble, pre, pre-deal to, to, to prime the pumps. So when you do have a deal, it's, it's off, off you go to the races. So in a nutshell, that was kind of the evolution of getting to that first deal. It was the permission to get, I can take myself seriously. I want to invest in myself, go out, get a mentor, uh, found a mentor who was relatively cheap that I could afford, who hadn't done a ton of experience, but he got enough that we were, you know, boom, he's done one deal. That's good. That's good enough for me. Um, through meeting people and starting my own meetup group, I was able to connect people who had a great deal 
And it was just, it was all organic. I was working full time uh, for, for, for someone else as a, as a structural engineer at the time. It was, a, it was, it was crazy, but it, but you just, you figured it out. Right. And it was uh, looking back on it. You just like, wow, what the hell happened there? You know? <laughs> so, so that was, that was the first deal. I want to go into some more details on the first deal. It sounded like, um, raising money in the beginning was harder because it was uh, your first deal and a couple other people on the team. Uh, there was a challenge kind of getting the money for the 250 unit um, in Houston. Number one, you can use names on the podcast. So if you're hiding them for, for, the, for the show, that's one thing. And if, if, if it's just for you, that's a different thing. But um, we're open for having okay. names. I Got think it. some of it's interesting. But I will. I, I wanted to kind of go into this this deal and and talk a little bit more about like what did it take to get it over the line? Because you did tell me that there was challenges, but what did it take to actually push it past the line and and end up being able to close it? Yeah. Look, the, and and I, I will preface this by saying that. Um, I was uh, a quote unquote key figure, but I wasn't necessarily driving the ship. Does that make sense? So, you know, I was the, 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 the third co-pilot <laughs> or fourth co-pilot. So um, yeah, like it, it just back to that sort of, it was such a blur. And, and honestly, there's been so many deals in between now and then that it was, it was sort of making that connection. And, and the, the, the gentleman's names were, were, were Joe Fellis and Frank Rosler, who've started Ashcroft Capital. And they were the two, Joe happened to be my mentor and Frank was, was a mate of mine that I met here in LA. So um, it was really making that a connection, letting the spark go, me sort of trying to do what I can to, to, to help with raising the funds and really other people involved who came in, who I had no idea who they were, but they came in to help and, and make sure that everything got together. And it was a, you know, the collective genius uh, of really Joe, Frank, and a couple of other key folks that, that got that capital raised. I know looking back on it, like it was, it was bare bones type of get the deal over the line. There was no additional capital raising for uh, CapEx or, or stuff like that, but it was a seven cap. So this was a 2000 built deal. So it was like, I think the money, like on, on the, you know, it was 250 units. It was, um, I can't even remember the, 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 per, the average, per, it was seven, whatever the seven cap was, but it, it was something like, it was, it wasn't a, you know, seven or 8 million bucks. It was sort of like three or $4 million, if that makes sense. So it wasn't a massive, massive nut. Um, but still that's a daunting task for anyone who's, you know, going to go do a deal. Um, so look, it comes down to just chunking up the pie and making sure everyone's got their roles and responsibilities and, and thus also responsible for an X amount of capital and just doing whatever the hell you could. And it was kind of like scatter into like, all right, come together. All right. Uh, and break. And we all just went off and did our own thing. And they're like, hey, this is what I've got, you know, like and just sort of presenting it and then eventually uh, getting it to the table. It was one of those deals that looking back on it did take, you know, a good three to four months to close. We had a, like a long time, I think it was three or four months, a long time period to, to raise that capital. And, and that is obviously knowing that the deal's good, knowing that, you know, the people in place uh, have, have the right um, uh, mindset to move it forward. And it was just sort of do whatever it takes to get this thing across the line. And that's what, that's what everyone sort of got in the boat and started stroking towards the finish line. So in general, it, you know, I can't say it was one specific thing, but it was it was obviously in and around the anxiety around raising equity uh, for a deal, particularly on the first the first go around. So yeah, and and that was twenty fourteen. You said, yeah, twenty late twenty started in late twenty fourteen. Ended up closing. I think it delayed a little bit, but ended up closing in early two thousand and fifteen. Um, 
and then th- those two are off to the races. They've done you know, 10,000 units, I think, today. I, I just interviewed uh, Frank at the Best Ever Conference. So um, I, I'd been subsequent years after that, I, I was involved in some of their other deals. But then it wasn't until early 2017 myself that I went off and did my own syndications um, because I finally got the confidence to go off and do it. And um, that's a whole different story in itself. So, and yeah. you, you guys have uh, been doing really well. Um, what's the name of your company? Wildhorn Capital, meet myself and Andrew Campbell. Um, and we, 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 just in Wildhorn, we, this is not Joe and Frank and other stuff. We've, we've got 1,900 units ourselves. And that's been over the last three or four years. So, um, but yeah, that, the, overall, the big takeaway for all your listeners out there is partnerships are key. Um, you, you need complementary skill sets within individual partners within your group because you need to divide and conquer. You cannot wear all the hats. And if you think you can wear all the hats, you're going to, spend a lot of time pedaling and spinning your wheels and not getting anywhere. So even today to this point, Andrew Campbell and myself, we have complementary skill sets. We know exactly he compliments me, I compliment him and we stick to our lanes of what we're good at and we can go off and do so much more and grow the business that much quicker when we understand those roles and responsibilities. Great stuff. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the market right now. What mm-hmm. are you seeing happening over the last um, several years of being of, of syndicating the 1,900 units that you own as we're recording? Um, what are you seeing happening in the future and what is your company doing to pivot? Yeah, so look, let's talk about where we've come from, right? We've, we've definitely seen since 2014, you know, when that, that first Houston deal came around and to, to call it three or four months ago, like it's gone frothy as hell, right? And, and we all know that cap rates are compressing, um, people coming into the market, new syndicators buying up deals, existing 1031 exchange money, wanting to get a lot of international capital coming to the United States, which a lot of people don't necessarily talk about why they come to the United States. Um, so a lot of contributing factors to why the multifamily, commercial multifamily here in the United States was so frothy. Uh, and, and so that's... It was always getting, you know, you speak to a lot of pundits out there who it's too it's too frothy, you can't get involved, and, and you know, but yet people are still capital on the sideline wanting to deploy into multifamily deals. So um, we have grown our business very uh, slow and strategically and making sure that we do buy value-add product at a reasonable uh, rate that we think in the future will exponentially grow uh, based on certain markets that we're investing in. Um, but also, like, so that's, that's where we've come from, where we're going. Well, we're here, right? We, we, no one really saw this coming. Uh, it wasn't a fundamental uh, systematic issue that we've had with, with, with financing like 2008 was, um, but it's here. And, and we, this, this, we are in a recession. Uh, we are talking about depression. I'm not sure if that is the right word, but you, you think about what's happening with the unemployment rate. You think about what's happening with quantitative easing. You think about what's happening across the globe. The only silver lining to this whole thing, Adam, is that this is a world pandemic where 2008 was US dependent, which then trickled, which then, you know, uh, started an explosion around the world, right? Where, where it was sort of, it was fundamentally started here in the United States. So we're all, today, we're all in the same boat, Australia, you know, all the Western countries who who have people, there's landlords in Australia, there's landlords in Europe, there's landlords in the UK, there's landlords in Mexico, there's landlords in Canada, all wanting their money and people having to stay at home and they can't work, right? So, um first and foremost, when, when the whole news broke, and, and we, as we're this recording of April 29th, um, we're only sort of a month or six weeks into this, you know, and we still haven't technically been allowed to leave our houses yet. 
um, it, it was about you know you know life safety, making sure the tenants are safe, making sure our, our, our staff are safe. Uh, really working with people to make sure they can pay their rent. So bringing in payment plans, bringing in um, educational you know, flyers to make sure people know where to go and get subsidies from from the government if, if they're offering those subsidies. Um, and then really looking forward towards the, the collections. And, and we, we're coming to the month of April um, and across our portfolio, we're, we're above 97% collected. So over delinquency, about 3%. Um, and we only have, and some of that delinquency is from prior months. So uh, I think out of the 1,900 units, we only have less than a 1% of people who will have an outstanding balance from April's collections roll over into May, which is pretty good. Um, I know today that the Texas governor, and we invest in Texas, so the Texas governor uh, did, has started to loosen um, laws in and around um, social distancing and, and retail and, and shops and uh, restaurants. Um, so that's really, really good. So there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel, but but the big thing, the unknown everyone doesn't know about is, okay, will it, will it peak again? And we've got to, you know, um, we'll have to go back in, indoors. The thing is with this, the, the curve flattening is what people don't, and maybe they do talk about it, but, but understands that the flattening of the curve doesn't mean you go to zero. There's going to be still people that are going to get sick once we, you know, we've got to get to herd immunity before there's a vaccine. Um, so that is, that, that's the unknown right now of what does this next six to 12 months look like between now and a vaccine or now and herd immunity. Um, and that's really where that for me as an investor gives me a little bit of pause. Um, coupled with the high unemployment, um, and, and I understand it's not a systemic value, but we are still trying to work with all our lenders and broke uh, and brokers to make sure that we have enough capital on hand to see us out for the next three to six months. Um, and, and I don't, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball of like what's going to happen. But all I do know is that the GDP here in America, and I'm pretty probably widely wild, uh, widely spread across Western world, is that seventy percent of the GDP here in America is consumer based, meaning we we spend. You know, seventy percent of the GDP is made up of us spending money on stuff. You know, out and you know, rent and uh, insurance and education and healthcare and uh, socialising and going on travels and holidays. And the other thirty um, percent is made up of of government spending, investments, and and um, imports and exports. So, when we, as the seventy percent collectively meaning the population, are hamstrung from one an income point of view, but also from a spending point of view, because we can't go out and spend and go to concerts and sporting events, and and as we come slowly back online, that slowness and that back to normality is going to be what takes us. You know, it's not going to be a V-shaped curve. It's more going to be a long-shaped U, I believe. And, and that's the uncertainty that I'm not necessarily worried about, but it, it gives me some pause. Uh, things that I like to see are people starting to go, let's, you know, not enough's enough, but let's start to loosen those restrictions. And that, I think, gives people certainty to then go back and wanting to spend money to thus then you know, contributing to the GDP to thus then getting back to some sort of normalcy. And then we need to talk about the unemployment rate and, and what, how that is going to hopefully come down. But, you know, if you read all the different pundits out there, they're, they're talking 15% uh, unemployment rate in, in Q3 and, and ending uh, in 2020. How does that change uh, dramatic, uh, dramatically in 2021? And then how does that affect my business? Because there's a portion of my 1900 units that have low to median income, so low socioeconomic income people, you know, servers, contract workers, construction workers, admin people, they're all going to be affected. So um, 
yeah, that does. I don't know that really answers the question, but it's it's the other thing is we're all at the starting gates together. So when the light does go green, when I say starting gates, Australia's at the same starting gate as the United States, as Europe, it's how individual MSAs will get out of those starting blocks and get back to some sort of normalcy, which is going to be really telling. And, and I, to, sitting here today, Adam, I don't know that answer, but it's going to be interesting to watch unfold as, as we move forward. A couple thoughts or questions that I had while you were sharing that. Um, you did bring up international capital a little bit earlier. And so I want to get some of your thoughts on what you think might happen. And the second thing that I was going to, we wanted to dive more deeply into is how your business is pivoting. So it sounds like you see some changes. It sounds like you think, uh, you assume it's going to be six, 12 months. It's going to be a U-shaped curve, not a V-shaped curve. Uh, meaning that it's there's going to be more aftermath. It's not going to be just over because uh, people aren't having COVID anymore. Um, I agree with all that. So how how is your company, Wildhorn Capital, pivoting during this time? Uh, are you are you closing on deals? Are you underwriting deals right now? Are you underwriting more conservatively? And and then let's talk about international capital after. Sure. So the first question is. Underwriting deals, yes. Yeah, so deals have dried up um, compared to early Q1. You know, stuff that we were underwriting in early Q1 has really pretty much gone away or uh, we're now underwriting to a massive discount. The underwriting piece, you have to be underwriting to, I, I, you know, my, my opinion is the next 24 months, so the year-on-year -year rental growth will be next to nothing, zero or depending on what MSA you're going to be in, you know, very small. So if you're underwriting to even 2 or 3% rental growth year-on-year, -year, I think that's too aggressive. Um understanding your exit cap rates, what you're buying the, the, the asset for and what you're exiting at. You know, like rule of thumb in the past has been you, you buy it at a five cap, you sell it at a five and a half cap. So you're expanding, you know, maybe 10 basis, po 10 basis points a year for five years. That's That's been typical rule of thumb. I think that's going to go away and that's, it's going to have to be more like 100 basis points. Maybe it's 20 basis points a year or 25 basis points a year. You're expanding that cap rate um, and, and really understanding where exit cap rates are going to be um, and, and what equity is going to accept, right? Because you always got to back into equity. Like what are your investors going to accept these days? Um, I think you have to underwrite to high concessions, higher bad debt. Um, and, and and look, when you do start underwriting deals and when deals still can't start you know, shape, being shaken loose here, which currently today, we're not underwriting a ton because there's just not a lot of deal flow right now. And people who are sitting on good deals aren't going to sell today. Um, you're only going to see fire sales from people who are struggling uh, that might have had really over leveraged or they have uh, not enough capital on hand, or they've got low maturities coming due. So I think if you're seeing a deal today, uh, take it with a, with a grain of salt that you know that something else is going on behind the scenes that is forcing that person to sell. Um, in terms of, so th I think that's the moving that's the moving forward in the underwriting piece. Uh, deals will come come around. Uh, if you look back to 2008, the deals weren't in 2008, 2009. It was actually 2010, 2011 when the best deals started coming around. So there was a time because the real estate market does lag uh, you know, the, the everyday day-to-day -day economy. Um, so in terms of international money, uh, look, every dollar, the, the, the cost of money is going to take a hit. 
if you read any of Ray Dalio's um, thesis, theses, is that the, our capital, uh, the capital money's capital is going to be worth less because of the quantitative easing. Um, I'm not going to get into whether quantitative easing is good or bad uh, right now. Um, but, but for international capital, there's obviously foreign exchange risk right now. So when I know the United, just for example, the Australian dollar has taken a massive hit against the US or the greenback, um, larger than what has been historically it has been. So attracting necessarily strain capital. Um, there is still the, and this is just uh, anecdotal, um, but I've interviewed a couple of international folks that um, if you don't, if you open a bank account up around the world, and if you didn't know this, uh, the United States chases its, foreign, its, its, its residents around the world and what they want their tax. It's the only country that really does it. Um, and so on every, if you open up a bank account in, uh, in England or in Australia, there's going to be an IRS question saying, you know, are you a US citizen? Uh, and it's so all these international countries tell the US banks if other, if their US citizens are opening bank accounts in the, in, in the rest of the world. Conversely, uh, international countries saying, hey, we want to see if our foreign, if our residents are opening bank accounts in the United States. And the US had said no at the time. And I don't know if that's changed, but back under the Obama law, it, it did, he, he did say no. So really from an international perspective, what has that done is that the the this uh, not secrecy the um uh the the, the laws in and around um, privacy uh, when starting U.S. entities are really viewed as from an international perspective international investors as really like quote unquote an offshore bank account here in the United States because they're not sharing that information back to the country of origin um, so hence why when I said before a lot of people aren't talking about the international flow of capital. Part of the reason is one, you got in US dollars, but two, you could potentially—I don't want to say hide money—but you don't, you're not maybe at risk that the United States is going to tell its home, your home country, that you've got a couple of million dollars sitting in US bank accounts. If that makes sense, so that I don't think if that fundamentally changes, then that will change international capital coming into the United States. But I believe the reason that they did that was to to continue to attract international capital and to do away with offshore bank accounts. Um, at least from an, from outsiders' point of view, coming in, not necessarily Americans. I'm, I'm not talking about Americans going out. I'm talking about outsiders coming in. Um, so nearly look like nearly like a tax haven um, from an international perspective. Does that make sense? Yes. For <laughs> you in um, Wildhorn, where is most of your money come? From? How does not just most of it, but kind of how is it? How does it look? And I'll share for us. It's like ninety percent U.S., five percent. Canada, 5%, Australia. We've never worked with anyone in China or or Japan or whatever. So I, I want to kind of see yeah. how your business looks. Yeah, look, it, look, it's roughly the same, probably maybe a slightly higher on the international. Maybe it's 80% American um, or maybe 85% American. We do have a lot of investors from China. Um, we have a lot of investors from, um, from, uh, from Australia. Uh, so probably 85, 15, that 15% is chunked up into majority is probably Chinese, um, with some smidgen of Australian, with some um, smidgen of Europeans and Canadians. So, yeah. For the listener who, um, thinks that that sounds attractive to work with Chinese money, um, what are the ways that you've found work best to, to tap into that? Look, the Chinese in general, um, uh, they're, they're, 
they're a country of, of or their, their culture is of trust, really built on trust. Um, and so I don't necessarily have a direct relationship with one Chinese investor. We have got other folks who, who are involved in our group that have direct relationships. And through that trust of doing business with that person, they've been able to come into our, our deals. Um, it, it is very hard to build trust quickly. Uh, so that's why you have to, like anything, it's, you know, any business you build, it takes time to build that trust. Um, so once you do do one deal well with one person and they start telling other folks, it's the same trickle, you know, excuse me, word of mouth um, that gets around. And that's the same with Americans as well. Uh, from an international perspective, regardless of who you get money from, they need to be set up correctly here in the United States in order to you're not liable for with 30% withholding tax. Um, you, you never, as an operator, want to be taking direct money from international folks because then you are liable for withholding tax based on the IRS. So, you know, all the advice that I give to all my international um, um, investors and who I, I help guide on, on down this path is that they've got to come and set up an LLC here in the United States and they can use that LSO to invest in my deals, they can invest in your deals, they can buy their own apartment deals, but they've set up correctly. Uh, they've got an EIN number, they've got a bank account, they've gone through foreign exchange uh, legal channels to get their money into the country, and thus they are viewed as an individual entity and don't tax me, Reed Goosens or Wild Hong Capital, um, and then they can invest freely. And it takes time and, and a little bit of upfront money, but when you go down that path, you've set them up legally, uh, you help guide them legally to, to, to invest in deals. And that trust and transparency and education through that process has enabled me to raise a little bit of money or, or some bit of money from countries like China and Australia and, 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 um, and, and, the, and the sort because I'm helping educate them through the process of getting set up legally here in the United States before they start investing. I know for us, we did what we needed to do um, with at least our Canada Canadian investors, we had to do an LP instead of an LLC mm -hmm. because they were going to get taxed. Um, I, I don't know a lot about it myself because one of my partners deals with all that. Um, but I am interested in learning like what, what you've seen. Um, does, so I guess one of the, for sure, Canada, um, it has to be an LP or limited partnership versus an LLC. Um, with what you were saying, it sounds like maybe some Canadian investors just need to come in and set up an LLC first. Correct. It, um, why is that different from, like, why is that going to help with the taxes versus, I know you're not an accountant, so if you want to skip the question, <laughs> but I to me, it seems like if they're making money with an LLC, uh, they would be paying the same taxes anyway versus uh, doing like a limited partnership. Do you Yeah, so the, look, the, specifically to the individual country, I'm not the expert. I can only help with keeping one myself and my business, uh, not, no liability when it comes to the taxation piece, US, I mean. Um, so all my advice to all my international folks who are out there, you're going to have a US-based CPAs who, in which I can, that's part of the services I provide to my international folks is I introduce them to US-based CPAs who are well-versed in non-resident tax advice, but they're going to have to have their own CPA back in their home country, i.e. Canada. So clearly sounds like one of your investors has talk, spoken to his Canadian CPA and their advice from a Canadian taxation point of view is like it's better to have an LP set up here in the United States, not an LLC. Whatever entity you choose, 
should be based on the fact that you've spoken to your home CPA attorney, uh, country of country of origin, in order to understand your tax liability within that country. I can't be an expert across all the countries across the world. I can only be an expert here. And from my point of view, uh, if you are raising capital from foreign investors, you need to help. You need to be at arm's length, and that means either helping them get set up with an entity, it could be an LLC, it could be an LP, it could be an S Corp, a C Corp, whatever they think that's going to be the best for their personal taxation in their home country. They are then set up as a sole entity here in the United States. They treat like any other entity. They can invest wherever they want. They will. The US government will ask them for a tax return every year uh, from the dividends that they receive from investments. But then you aren't liable as the operator that to withhold that 30% withholding tax if say Joe Blow from Canada is like, hey, Reid, can I just wire you 100,000 bucks? And it's like, no, I don't, I don't, don't wire me $100,000. You have to go through the, the right channels in order to be viewed as an individual entity. And thus we can then do business. Because once they've funded that individual entity in the United States, they can then transfer the 100 Gs into that entity. And then that entity can then invest in my deals. Um, and that's the, legal, that's the legal channels to come through. Good, good stuff. Love it. All right. Um, what other considerations can you think of that we should be talking about for COVID right now? Is there anything that we missed? No, I don't think so. I think, yeah, look, it's, we're, still, we're still in the coalface. We're still in the fire, right? We haven't got out of it yet. Um, the, 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 the starting gate analogy is still what I really go back to. Um, it's good to see some, some normalcy and um, clear, fair and reasonable measures brought into place. I understand there's a, it's a public health emergency. I think the biggest lesson here is making sure we are looking at our lessons on our, on our public health care system, on how we avoid this in the future. To, because here's the thing, Adam, we in the history of the modern world has never shut down the world economy, not even for World War II, for as long as we've shot it down for, right? Like, and that's, that's, that's nuts. And, and this, we'll call it, what I don't want to call it enemy, but this new world that we live in where uh, public health and, and viruses can morph from animals into humans, that's going to be a major issue moving forward. And how do we all as investors, as, as, as multifamily residential owners, how do we make sure we're prepared for that? Because it will happen again. Let's not, let's whether it happens in five, 10, 15, we don't know. Unlike the systemic issues, you can see the, the peaks and trots and you kind of can time when the market's going to come. This is completely random. And this is going to be the, the, the new norm of how we prepare for this type of stuff moving forward. So, so yeah. If I was a brand new investor, never closed on uh, syndication in my life, and I, was, I have been looking at it for the last year or two, maybe studying your podcast, my podcast, uh, Joe's podcast, whatever. I, I'm in, interested. I'm intrigued. What do you think they should be doing? That, that brand new uh, person right now, should, should they be jumping in? Should they be underwriting more? Should be joining a coaching program? What are your thoughts if, if you're totally brand new, and especially during, uh, I would call this a crisis, yep. um, like this, what, what, what's their yeah, path? The, 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 big, the biggest, biggest thing is self-education. And I think everyone is, and I'm an operator, and you're an operator as well, Adam, is like, everyone's taking a bit of a breather right now because the capital markets are frozen, um, lending's hard, deals are hard to come by. Um, so right now, use the time to be educated. If you have money on the sideline, keep it there for a little bit of time and use it wisely. I think another good thing to do is maybe if you're thinking about syndication and dipping your toe in, 
maybe you're doing it as an LP, or maybe you can spend this time interviewing operators and finding the best operator you want to invest with. Um, I definitely think getting them, if you want to be an, eventually become, excuse me, an operator, getting a mentor is super important. That's what helped fast track my career. As I, we spoke about the story earlier with Joe and Frank, um, so really doubling down on your education is because right now the real estate world is at a bit of a grinding halt because everyone's waiting to see what's going to happen. And again, this has been recorded as, as of May 20, uh, uh, April 29th. So, um, so yeah. Good stuff. Well, let's get into the final five. Uh, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey guys, please check out Merrill Callister's law firm, Callister & Associates, callisterlaw.com. They're one of the only full-service syndication law firms in the country for a flat rate fee. They will represent you from letter of intent all the way through to the closing of the transaction. This includes PSA negotiation, title review and objections, creating the PPM, investor questionnaires, subscription agreements, filing with the SEC and any applicable blue sky filings out of state, along with lender due diligence and assistance with closing the transaction. Callister and Associates also represents sellers of multifamily assets, as well as owners that are refinancing. They have represented over $3 billion in syndication transactions and are currently handling 20 to 30 syndications in any given month. Callister & Associates is your one-stop shop for all things real estate. For more information and a free consultation, please go to callisterlaw.com. That is K-A-L-I-S-E-R law.com. And I've also put that in the show notes for you. And we're back with the Reed Goosens. Um, what's the most creative deal you've ever done? Oh, most creative deal I've ever done. I think the most creative deal I've ever done is the first deal. Just because I, even though I paid for it myself and I got had no other partners, it was just giving myself the confidence that I can go up and do this first deal. And it was a small triplex in upstate New York. And the old, the old saying is you don't get to deal number 10 without doing deal number one. So that first deal is really super important. What's a book you recommend? Uh, I, I recommend this book a lot and, and it's not to do with anything to do with the real estate, but it's to do with online brand or sort of to do with branding in general. It's called key person of influence by Dan Priestley. He's an Australian author. Um, it talks about being a key person of influence in your sphere. You not have to be the next Tony Robbins, but how do you go and attract um, leads and uh, employees and investors and business opportunities through branding yourself correctly. So that's a, that's a really, really good one. Key person of influence, KPI. Good stuff. Um, take me back five years ago. I, you, you probably had done your first deal already, but you hadn't quite started the podcast. What were you going through? What, what was it feeling like? <sighs> to be honest with you, mate, um, there was some there were some dark times there where you're thinking you're trying to do deals, you're trying to start the podcast, you're trying to keep a food on the table because I was at a W two job back then, trying to have a relationship. There was a lot of spinning plates, um, so it was probably a little stressful, a little anxiety inducing. Um, and and you know the advice to myself is you're going to get there eventually. Uh, so yeah, it, it, people out there it, taking building a business takes a lot of time and effort and can be stressful at times. And um, yeah, so five years ago, that's probably where I was in, in the belly of the beast. And so you were feeling that, and I know there's a lot of listeners that are feeling that right now. And you decided to start a podcast, which obviously um, it, it can be overwhelming. Uh, a lot of listeners probably are feeling that right now. Uh, would you suggest that that the listener decide to do a podcast or not? 
Look, it depends on what you gravitate towards. For me, you might, you know, there's so many different, a podcast is just one tool or one microphone. Uh, you can have a blog, you can do a monthly newsletter, you can do YouTube, you can do um, Instagram live stuff, like whatever it's going to take in order to get your message out to your network. Again, you don't have to be inspired to be the next Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss, but educating your sphere and go back to key person of influence about what you do and how you do it. Uh, do you want to write a book? You know, um, can you, so there's all these different ways of, of medium, uh, choose which one you, you resonate towards and do that well. And then over time you can collect that information that you've done in that one medium and put it into a different medium. I.e., I did my podcast and after 150 episodes, I collated all the best episodes and put them into a book. And so now I've got two different mediums that I can use. I also got the YouTube channel. So it starts with just something that you're going to commit to and commit to it for a minimum of three years. And I think you have spoken on my podcast about this, but you have to commit to it to a, to a long period of time uh, because it's not going to happen in the first six months. It, there's so many with, with this new world of social media, things just, there's so much noise out there. So how do you stand out? So through authenticity and through having a good brand that you can niche towards uh, in order to, to, to get your message out to, to the people who want to want to do business with you. Reed, how do you add value to other people? How do you give back? Through the podcast, um, through sharing my story, uh, hopefully to inspire others. I don't say it to boast. Any of this stuff, if you hear me on any of the podcast, I try and I, I want to lead with integrity first. And, and for me, it's I'm, I'm boots on the ground. I'm a down-to-earth guy that's approachable. I try and inspire people through the story that I, the, through my journey. It's it's my journey. It doesn't, it's not anyone else's journey. It's mine and I own it, right? And and so that's really the way I give back is by saying, look, if I can do it, you can do it. And, and these are just some of the tips and tricks that I've learned along the way. Great stuff. What is the best way for the listener to find you? And yep. get a hold of people? Easiest way is to go to readgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. And you can, you can reach out to me there. Lots of doubles in your name. <laughs> There's a lot of doubles. Double E, double O, double S. Double S. <laughs> and I might accidentally mistakenly put a double N in there too. I don't <laughs> Why know. not? Just throw it in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just me as well. Uh, good stuff. I, I appreciate you coming on the show, talking to us a little bit about your history, um, moving to the U.S. eight years ago, starting syndicating, uh, connecting Frank. And um, I've always wondered, how did Frank meet Joe. I always wondered that, but now I know. Uh, <laughs> um, starting that first deal, 250 units. I, one of the takeaways that I have that I hope the listener got as well is with that deal, Frank's tenacity. Frank asked you to do it. Hey, put me in touch with your mentor. And you, you did it. But then out of nowhere, like most people wouldn't even ask the first time. And then Frank asks the second time, why don't you just ask him again? I think we can all learn a lot about that. And look what Frank's done. You know, what is it? Almost 10,000 units or something? Yeah, it's, in, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, good stuff. And thanks for talking about the international. You have a lot more experience uh, raising international capital than I do and a lot of other syndicators that I know and just understanding how to protect yourself from using that 30%. One of my favorite parts that you shared about that was how important it is that we are letting the CPA do the CPA's job. Like mm -hmm. you, we can just, we, we arm's length, you do this and, and I'm just going to do the parts that I need. 
um, all the way down to how you give back, what your suggestions are about if you should start a podcast or a blog, and your creative deal, that triplex that you bought in upstate New York, or was it New York City? No, upstate New York, Syracuse. Upstate, <laughs> upstate New York. And uh, actually, my first deal was a triplex. My first ownership of a multifamily was a triplex as well. So we've got that in common. I appreciate awesome. you coming on. I'm going to let you go, brother. But until Thanks, ne- oh, I'm going to let you go, mate. Until <laughs> next time, think outside the box. If you got value out of today's episode, please make sure to leave us a review and let us know how you feel. Um, Jason and I are very, very grateful to have you as a loyal listener and to have you keep coming back and back and back. I want to remind you that Calister and Associates, they can help you literally from the very beginning to the very end of all of your apartment investing transactions. So great resource for you, calisterlaw.com. And if you do want to check out my brand new YouTube channel, it's apartmentinvestingshow.com. I hope to see you there.